Johnny uh, grabbed his bat and his ball and he headed to the backyard. And as he was walking out by himself, he was convinced of one truth. The truth is, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. So he got out to the backyard and he took that ball and he threw it up in the air and he swung with all of his might and missed. Johnny yelled, strike one, and picked up the ball. Repeated to himself, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Threw the ball up in the air, swung again, watched the ball land in the grass and picked it up. Strike two. He had seen on TV that some of the batters, when they get really serious, they spit in their hands and rub them together, and so he tried that and said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Tossed the ball up in the air and swung. Missing again. Strike three. What would you expect Johnny to do? Many of us would say, uh, it's okay, you're just learning, try again. Not Johnny. Johnny wasn't dejected at all. In fact, Johnny at the top of his lungs yelled, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world! You see, I love the game of baseball. That seems unusual to talk about that today on this cold, wintry day. But this is one of my favorite times of the baseball season. Because every single team believes that they have a real shot at winning the World Series right now. 
They're all on even playing ground. They can go out and they can sign a new pitcher, a new batter, or somebody for the bullpen in order to strengthen their team, and their hopes are high. I was uh, umpiring for the 12 and under uh, Little League uh, state championship a couple of years ago. I was behind the plate. It was a very close game. One of the teams had a pitcher who was uh, tall for being a 12-year-old, and he really hummed the ball. He's probably pitching 72, 73 miles an hour as a 12-year-old. Uh, it was a lot of fun because he had a nice, what we call Uncle Charlie, curveball to go with it, and he was a very good pitcher. And this other team was just overwhelmed by this pitcher. They hadn't been able to get more than a hit the whole game. At the bottom of their order was their little second baseman, he was intimidated by most pitchers, but as he was coming up to bat, I literally heard him say, I don't know why I even brought my bat with me. I'm never going to be able to hit off this guy. He's talking to himself and putting himself down on the way up to bat. So the, first, the pitcher throws the first pitch, which is a fastball right down the middle. It hits the catcher's glove. And then he swung. He's way behind. The second pitch was a curveball that he thought he was going to get hit by. It was behind him and then curved in. And he was sitting on his backside in the dirt, convinced he was going to get hurt when I had to say, strike two. And he looked at me as if to say, are you kidding there's no way I can hit that. And he stood up, and then I heard his third base coach say, that didn't get you out. That's just strike two. Don't give up. Do your very best. Get in there with some confidence and swing the bat. And as I looked at that young boy, I could see the determination in his eye. There was something different about him this time when he stepped into the box. The pitcher was very confident that this was going to be an easy out. And he zinged another fastball right down the middle. Only this time, that little second baseman was ready. And I remember the sound of the explosion that happened when the middle of his bat met the middle of that ball. It flew over the left fielder's head and then over the left field fence and then over the tree that is past the left field fence. And he stood there in the batter's box, not knowing what to do. I literally said, please drop the bat and run around the bases. And he did, as his whole team mobbed him. What does that have to do with faith? Good question. There are a lot of times in life that we're a lot like that batter. We don't think there's any hope of success. 
Why even try? I'm never going to be able to do it. And we try and we fail and we think that it's hopeless. And so we have this desire within us just to give up. And then you hear that phrase. That didn't get you out. Get up. Dust yourself off. Become determined. And do your very best. You see, God is our coach through life. He's the one telling us the same thing that that coach was telling that young boy. The other day I heard a a friend make a statement. And the more I've been thinking about that statement, the more I believe it's not true. Here's the statement. He said, "I'm I'm so glad that God is a God who gives a second chance. And I'm here to tell you, that's bull. God does not, is not a God who gives a second chance. God is a God of multiple chances. Because if God only gave a second chance, I would have never made it. Many of you would have never made it. When God is a God of multiple chances, there's always hope. So don't give up. Why do I believe that God is a God of multiple chances? Because this word shows me over and over and over again of opportunities that people had where God gave them multiple chances. Think of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read of David and Bathsheba, right? You know that story? Where he not only... um, knew it was wrong, but he didn't stop himself, and he ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then he tries to cover it up. So he committed adultery, strike one. He tries to cover it up, strike two. He has her husband killed in order to cover it up. Strike three, David should be out, right? But this is all before David became the great king of Israel. He was king, but he wasn't the great king. David we know as a great king and we also know him as the worship leader of Israel. Not without multiple chances. In Psalm chapter 51 verses 10 through 12, there's this famous passage of scripture that says, "Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me." Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's two words I want you to remember from that passage of scripture. The first word is renew. What does it mean to renew something? Go ahead and participate. What does it mean to renew something? To make something new, okay? It's to reestablish or make new again. To renew. To make it as if it was new again. We also heard the word restore, which is to bring back again. My, grand, my father-in-law uh, loves to restore 
uh, antique cars, antique gas pumps, antique barber chairs, and all these things. And he'll buy this pile of junk that's rusted, and I look at it and say, what are you doing? But give him a month, as, and that gas pump won't look like the rusty old bolts that it was before. It's totally different. It's restored to its previous value. And that's what David asked God to do. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. It's not just David, though. Think about the prodigal son. You know that story? Luke chapter 15. He fails himself. He fails his father. He leaves his brother to do all the work, so he fails his brother as well, and he fails his God. And then in Luke 15, verses 17 and 18, we read, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am st uh, starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He realized the error of his ways. He had an aha moment as Kyle Eidelman likes to refer to it. And he realizes his mistakes. He eats crow and he goes back home and says, I have failed. I failed God, I failed myself, and Father, I failed you. But the Father forgives. Puts a crown on his head and a robe around him and rejoices that his father or that his son has returned again. It's grace. Grace simply defined is getting what you don't deserve or unmerited favor. You might say it's being given a second or fourth or fifty-fourth chance. All over again. Matthew. You know the disciple Matthew? The one that they know as a tax collector? When Matthew was born, he was born to the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi is where all the priests come from for Israel. Every young boy who is the oldest son of his family, who is born in the tribe of Levi is raised to become a priest. And where do we meet Matthew in Mark chapter 2? Is he the priest at the temple? No, he's the tax collector who is robbing people at the market. He was a failure. He was a Jewish school dropout. But Jesus calls him to be one of his 12 disciples. Multiple chances. One of my favorite stories in scripture is the story of Jonah and the whale. Since I was a little kid, I've loved the idea of some big fish swallowing a man. That's pretty impressive. That's, I, as a kid, I thought, okay, this, this is pretty cool. So God asked Jonah to do something, which was to go to Nineveh. And what was Jonah's response? I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I'm not going. And he sails the exact opposite direction. 
Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He fails God and the people of Nineveh and himself. And eventually he tells the sailors in the midst of a storm, the reason that you're having this storm and that you're scared for your life is because I have gone away from God. If you will throw me overboard, the seas will calm. Well, the sailors didn't want to be responsible for his death, and so they tried other things. They didn't work. So eventually they realized, we're just going to have to toss him overboard. So they did. They threw Jonah overboard into the midst of the sea that the professional sailors were scared they were going to drown in. They send Jonah overboard. The seas calm. And then the big fish comes and swallows him whole. As a kid and, and growing up, I remember thinking, that's Jonah's punishment. He's going to have to live in the belly of some stinky, nasty fish. I don't even like the smell of fresh fish, let alone rotten fish and what they've been eating. But he's got to sit in that stuff. That's horrible. I remember a few years ago when I realized that the fish swallowing Jonah was the best thing that could have happened. Because if it had not happened, Jonah would be dead. He drowned. There's nobody there. He's in the middle of the sea by himself. He might be able to tread water for a while, but eventually he's going down. But the fish delivers him on the beach of Nineveh where God asked him to go to begin with. Talk about a second chance. While he's in the fish, Jonah writes this. Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You wonder why I believe God gives multiple chances? Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to them the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Well, when the fish spits you up on the beach of Nineveh, it's kind of hard not to go to Nineveh. <laughs> but Jonah was willing. And so he goes and he tells the people, this is what God has to say. Remember, the town of Nineveh are his arch rivals. They're his enemies. He wants nothing to do with them other than to cast them into hell itself. That's why he didn't go the first time. Now he says, God, you want me to walk into this evil, horrible, wretched enemy city and proclaim to them, if you don't turn... You're going to burn. More or less, that's the message that God told Jonah to proclaim. And the people of Nineveh listened to it, turned from their evil, wicked ways, and became believers of Jonah's God. And Jonah threw a party, right? Wrong again. Jonah is mad at God. What? This makes no sense. Because he would rather 
that all of his enemies had been wiped off the face of the earth. But instead, God saved them all. And so Jonah is now angry with God while all the evil people are now worshiping God. Unusual story. But God restores Jonah again. That would be the third time. That's why I believe in multiple chances. If you think of Peter, he claimed that he would never, ever deny Christ. In fact, he said, I would rather die than to deny you once. And less than 24 hours later, the rooster crowed, which signified that Peter had denied Jesus not once, but three times in less than 24 hours. But Jesus forgives. Jesus says that he will build his church upon Peter. And then Jesus says that Peter is now called the rock. Meaning the steady one and the faithful one. Have you experienced Peter? The last thing Peter is, is steady. Peter is the one who always reacts and shoves his foot in his mouth. When they tried to arrest Jesus, he thinks it's a good idea to pull a sword and chop off the soldier's ear just for kicks as if that's going to stop him. He's constantly going off on the handle as far as what he says and what he does. But Jesus has great faith in Peter, calling him the steady and faithful one. And when you see the life transformation in the man called Simon Peter, it's because Jesus gave him multiple chances and believed in him and he lived up to expectation. The woman caught in adultery, we know uh, she's supposed to be stoned to death. Jesus gives her another chance and says, hey, uh, if you haven't sinned, go ahead and cast a stone, which is more or less saying she, we're no better than she is. We've all sinned. So why are we trying to punish this woman with death for something that we have done ourselves? And so we see that Jesus then turns to the woman and he says, go and leave your life of sin. Make a change. Do life differently. Live for God, not for yourself, because she was supposed to die. Jesus gave her life. Now what are you going to do with it? And the last story that comes to my mind, there are so many more, but time is part of it, is the criminal on the cross. The one who's hanging to Jesus' left. You see, he chose a life of crime. He gets caught. He's being punished rightfully. That's what he said about himself. 
But then he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. As the one who takes away the sins of the world. And he turns to Jesus while they both hang upon the cross and says, Jesus, forgive me. Will you remember me as you enter into your kingdom? And Jesus forgives him, gives him another chance and washes him clean. So what about you and me? We're no different than these biblical characters. No, I've not been swallowed by some big fish that would take a really big fish. But we're no different than they are. We've all sinned. We've all let God down. And we need God to forgive us and give us multiple chances just like they did. We have failed to live for God. But not God has not given up on us, just like he never gave up on Peter. Right after Christmas break, my senior year in college, uh, my roommate came back from, from Michigan, came back to Indiana, Wesleyan, and Marion, and uh, he brought with him a toy that we had never experienced before. He got it for Christmas, and... It was a, a flight simulator and a joystick that you put in. It's a, a computer game. I know I'm way dating myself because this was way before laptops and all that other stuff. But we, we uh, put the, the game on the computer, plugged in the joystick, and he said, all right, now you can pick where you're leaving from and where you're going to fly to. And so I thought, all right, we'll leave from Indianapolis. It's the closest airport, and I'll fly to Chicago. The first time that we're flying around, I flew right into what used to be called Sears Tower. Annihilated my plane. But something really cool happened. As soon as I had ruined that plane, all of a sudden, I'm back in Indianapolis with a brand new plane and I can choose where I want to go. Well, Chicago didn't work real well for me the first time, so let's choose somewhere else. I crashed into the Space Needle in Seattle. I crashed into Lake Michigan. I crashed into a bunch of places before I ever figured out how to land someplace. But in video games, they always give you another chance. And I'm here to tell you that your past does not limit your future. Just because you blew it the last time and the time before that and the time before that and you've been stuck in a rut sinning and failing God does not need, mean that you need to stay there. Because God keeps giving us chances to live for him. So my question as we close today is this. What is stopping you from doing great things for God? What is stopping you?
from doing great things for God. 2018 can be the year that you succeed. I don't know what your success looks like because it's different for all of us. Here's some ideas. Success for this year means I'm going to live to please God instead of myself. That would be a success. Maybe you're going to tell God thank you for all of his blessings and the things he has given you by trusting him and beginning to tithe. That would be a success. You're going to get involved in serving God. One way or another, success. I don't know what it is for you, but your past does not have to get in the way of what you can do this year. Today is a new day. Roger starts every Sunday that way. Today is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to us. Today is a new day. And we're beginning a new year. It's time to do something new and different in our spiritual life. Let's pray. God, you are a great God. You don't treat us as our sins deserve, but you instead forgive us, give us multiple chances, love us through it all. And so we look forward with anticipation to this new year. Realizing, Lord, that we have a blank slate and you can do whatever you wish if we would just be willing. So I'm praying that you would go through each of these seats, each of these aisles to each person, that you would love and forgive and encourage and challenge each of us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you and for the betterment of the saints and for our lives as well. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, the one who gave multiple chances and is still doing so today. Amen.